We've spent the last two weeks reading the entire book of Ephesians, and my goal in doing that was to split it up into the larger paragraphs and to try to show how all those paragraphs relate to each other, to make sure we were catching the big picture of Paul's argument. But today, we begin what I, will tr- what I trust will be a rich journey through Ephesians verse by verse. But before we get into that, let's pray and ask for God to bless our study. Dear Heavenly Father, what we know not teach us, what we have not give us, what we are not make us, for Your Son's sake, amen. Down through the centuries, Ephesians has been a favorite among Paul's letters for many Christians. Uh, It was John Calvin's favorite uh, Pauline letter. Uh, On his deathbed, the Scottish reformer John Knox asked his wife to read Calvin's sermons from Ephesians to him because he found it so encouraging. Uh, John Bunyan found many of the pictures that he put in Pilgrim's Progress. Uh, He talks about taking those straight out of the book of Ephesians. For instance, Christian's battle with Apollyon and the armor that we find at the end of Ephesians, uh, things like that. Uh, It was uh, John Bunyan's favorite. John Stott writes this about Ephesians. It is marvelously concise, yet is a comprehensive summary of the Christian good news and its implications. No one can read it without being moved to wonder and worship and challenged to consistency of life. And I agree with that. I like that last statement, challenged to consistency of life. Certainly, we're going to be challenged. And this morning, we start our verse-by-verse journey by looking at Paul's greeting in chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. So, please turn there in your Bible, Ephesians 1, verse 1. And as we look at the greeting, uh, I want to let you know that uh, in the Roman and Greek and Jewish world in the first century, uh, there was a formula that all letters had. Uh, There was an introductory greeting that identified who the writer was, and then also identified who the intended reader was, and then gave some form of greeting. Now, the Apostle Paul does… he has all three of those elements in his letters, but he elaborates on them in such a way that his greetings are much longer than the regular greetings that you would find in just a a historical Roman or Greek letter. And the reason why is this. When Paul introduces himself, he often adds his apostolic credentials. When he mentions his readers, he often gives some encouraging, complimentary description of them And then also at the end, he usually gives an invocation, or maybe we could call it an informal prayer, for God to grant grace and peace to His readers. And so, in that way, his greetings are a little bit longer than the standard greeting of the era. Now, let's be candid. I'm tempted, and I know many of you are too, to skip over Paul's greeting and get to the good stuff, to get to the heart of the letter. Uh, But there's a problem with that. To that temptation, we must remind ourselves that there are no throwaway words in the Bible. Every word is there by divine intentionality, and not only is every word there by divine intention, every word is in some way relevant to us. Let me give you an example. Take, for example, the Old Testament genealogies. I don't plan to preach the Old Testament genealogies anytime soon. 
I don't blame you if you want to skip them in your Bible reading plan or listening plan. In fact, I will even go so far as to concede that when you study the genealogies to see their original purpose for being recorded, they don't have any real direct relevance to your life as a New Testament, New Covenant Christian. I'll concede that. However, that doesn't mean they're completely irrelevant, right? They appear irrelevant, but though each of them has a somewhat different purpose, they remind us of things indirectly. They remind us that God cares about families and communities. They remind us that God is faithful to His promises down through the long generations of history. They remind us that God enlists individuals in His redemptive reconquest of a world gone bad. Indirectly, they remind me, anyway, that God writes down names in His book of life. And so, even the Old Testament genealogies, they do have something fruitful for us if we'll just stop and listen. And when the Holy Spirit inspired Scripture, including those genealogies and this greeting, uh, He didn't use any wasted words. Even the greetings that Paul writes to the churches have truth to be, mi- uh, excuse me, have truth to be mined. And so, let's look at them and see what they hold for us. Uh, Ephesians 1, verses 1 and 2. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are at Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, No doubt you could outline these verses a number of ways. I've chosen to outline it by asking this question, why study Ephesians? Why take the time to do this as a church family, as a sermon series? And in Paul's introduction, I find three reasons that it's worthy of our study. The first reason it's worthy of our study is because of its ultimate source. This letter is worthy of our careful attention and study because of who wrote it. The letter comes from a God-appointed messenger, the Apostle Paul. Paul was born around 2 or 3 B.C. His parents were Jews living in Tarsus. Tarsus was one of the largest, most prosperous cities in the Eastern Roman Empire. And Paul was not only born Jewish, he was also born a Roman citizen. And the reason why is because his parents had bought a Roman citizenship. Now, the way that it worked back then is it was very expensive for his parents to buy that citizenship. So, based on how much that cost, and then also based on the way that Paul was educated later in life, we assume, excuse me, later in life, during his growing up years, uh, his later growing up years, we assume that the family was probably wealthy. And as was customary for Jews living in a Roman province, Paul was given two names. His Jewish name was Saul. His Roman name was uh, Paulus, which we shortened to Paul. And in Philippians 3, Paul describes his upbringing as being raised as a Hebrew of Hebrews. Now, what that meant back then was this. Though his parents lived outside of Israel in a Roman metropolis, they did not integrate with the Romans in terms of diet or dress or customs. Uh, He was raised as a kosher Jewish boy, if you will. And we know from Acts 22 that Paul was brought up primarily in Jerusalem. At some point in his childhood, the family moved from Tarsus to Jerusalem, and when Paul came of age, he was taught by the most prestigious, uh, famous rabbi of his era, Gamaliel. He studied under Rabbi Gamaliel. 
Um, now, at this time, in this era, what, Jewish, what responsible Jewish parents did is they encouraged their sons to work with their minds and to pursue career fields where you work with your minds, and yet they also trained all of their sons to have a trade to work with their hands to fall back on. And you see that played out in Paul's life. When he becomes an adult, he's a Pharisee, and yet at the same time, he knows how to make tents. And if you remember his apostolic ministry, tent making came in really handy later on when he was an apostle. Um, we know for sure that he knew Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. He probably also knew some Latin. And the first time we encounter Paul in Scripture is when he's an adult. He's in his mid-30s, living as a zealous Pharisee and giving hearty approval to the stoning of Christians, uh, in this case, a Christian named Stephen. And Paul confesses in Acts 26 that as a Pharisee, he cast his vote on more than one occasion for the death of Christians. But the risen and glorified Christ appeared to him on the road to Damascus and marvelously saved Paul. Um, and Paul was then appointed, Christ appointed Paul to be the apostle that was primarily sent to the Gentiles. And for the next 34 years of his life, Paul lived as a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. And notice in Ephesians 1 verse 1, Paul introduces himself as an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Now, what does that word apostle mean? Well, apostle isn't even a, an English word. It's not even a Greek word that we translated into English. What our translators did was this. They took the Greek letters of the word and just assigned them the equivalent English letters so that we've, in, in essence, we've anglicized a Greek word. So, what does apostle mean in Greek since it's not a word that comes to us in English? Well, an apostle is one who is sent on behalf of another to be their representative. It was used in the Greek world for an authorized messenger who spoke with the full authority of the person who sent them. The closest thing we have in the English language, language would be an ambassador, right? A, a diplomatic agent of the highest rank who's sent to another country to represent their government, an authorized representative and messenger. That's what Paul was. And notice whom he represents. He is an authorized messenger of Christ Jesus. That word Christ is a title, uh, and it's the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew name Messiah or Hebrew title Messiah. So, Jesus is the Messiah God promised in Moses and the prophets to send to be the Savior of the world. He's come into the world, right, lived a perfect life, taught people, died a sacrificial death, rose from the grave, ascended into heaven, and become glorified, and He has sent Paul now to represent Him. And Paul didn't function, notice in verse 1, as a self-appointed messenger, right? He was, a, he was appointed to his post, chapter 1, verse 1, by the will of God. So, when you read this letter, you're not just reading some interesting insights into the Christian life from a Christian who lived in the early church, and man, because they lived in the early church, we're curious about what it was like back then, and so we read it because it's interesting stuff to read. No, you're reading the words of an authorized ambassador chosen and sent by God Himself whose words bear the full authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. That should be reason enough to study this letter. But 
that answer still falls short of providing an adequate explanation of who wrote the letter, because there are actually two authors. Here at Grace Fellowship Church, we believe that the Holy Scriptures, of which Ephesians is a part, were written by prophets and apostles who wrote down words from God as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Ephesians is a letter from Paul and also from the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit guided Paul to write with his own personality, his own vocabulary, uh, his own writing style, but as he wrote, to write the exact words God intended the Ephesians and now us to hear. Peter explains the phenomenon this way in uh, 2 Peter chapter 1. But know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Paul explains it this way to Timothy, all Scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Uh, if you remember during His earthly ministry, uh, when the Lord Jesus Christ would argue from the Old Testament. There's this one scene in the Gospels where the Sadducees come, and they press Him about the resurrection. Now, you can demonstrate the resurrection from the dead from multiple passages in the Old Testament. It's not like there's just one verse that talks about it. And this is, but this is how Jesus handled it. This is what He chose to do in that situation. He said to them, regarding the resurrection from the dead, have you not read what was spoken to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. What is Jesus doing here? He's quoting Exodus 3, 6, which is the burning bush incident where God speaks to Moses out of the burning bush. And He shows that God, is commun God wasn't communicating to Moses, I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who are now dead and gone. He's saying, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who's ever living, never dying, eternally conscious souls are still with me. I'm not the God of the dead. I'm the God of the living. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they still live, not here on earth, uh, but in the, their spirits uh, live on. Their souls have gone to be with the Lord in heaven. So, in other words, Jesus makes His point not based on the meaning of a single word, but on the verb tense of a single verb. I am the God, not I was the God. And this is not the only place in the New Testament where Jesus or His apostles make these kinds of arguments. And so, we could say it this way. At Grace Fellowship Church, we don't just believe that every word of Scripture is inspired by God. We believe every verb tense of every verb and every plural singular construction of every noun is there by the will of God and has something important to teach us, which means when Christians in our own generation or so-called Christians or false teachers, depending on how you want to interpret the situation, when they say that Paul got it wrong when he uh, told wives to submit to husbands or when he condemns homosexual acts as sinful, when they say that, they're denying the inspiration of Scripture. And the other thing they're doing is this. They're not just picking a fight with Paul. They're picking a fight with the Holy Spirit who inspired Paul to write what he wrote. 
Peter warned us that this was coming because this was already happening in his own day. Our generation is not like the first generation that people have argued with Paul. This has been happening in every generation down through church history, and it was happening back in Peter's day. This is what Peter says in his second letter to the churches. Regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as also our beloved brother Paul according to the wisdom given him, wrote you, as also in all of his letters, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort, as they do the rest of Scriptures to their own destruction. That's 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 15 and 16. So, notice in that passage, Peter explicitly calls Paul's letters Scripture. According to the Apostle Peter, those are, uh, Paul's letters are Holy Scripture, and the implication of Peter's words is that the wisdom given to Paul was given to him by the Lord Jesus who sent him as his messenger. And though Peter admits that Paul has written some things that are hard to understand, the problem with those who distort what Paul says isn't that what he wrote is hard to understand. That's not the primary problem. The primary problem is that those individuals are already distorting the rest of Scripture. And the same is true in our own day. Take someone who will stand up as a Christian teacher. Maybe they're a seminary professor or a pastor or an author. And take any of those people who would just say flat out, Paul says this in one of his letters and Paul got it wrong. And if you examine their teaching, you'll find that Paul is not the only person that they're distorting or disagreeing with in Scripture. They already disagree with a lot of other prophets and apostles. They're already distorting other prophets and apostles beyond the apostle Paul. Um, but we don't believe that here. We believe Paul was inspired by the Holy Spirit, and we need to wrestle with, grapple with his words and what they mean and how we can live them out. So, why take time to study Ephesians? Well, first of all, because we believe it was written by a God-appointed, authoritative ambassador of Christ uh, who wrote to the churches the very words God wanted the churches to hear as Paul was moved by the Holy Spirit. The second reason we're studying Ephesians is because of its intended readers. Notice Paul's intended readers. Uh, he writes, middle of verse 1, to the saints who are at Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus. So, this letter was written to Christians just like you and me. They lived in a different time, in a different place, different culture, yes, but they experienced sorrows and joys and temptations that are very similar to ours as we try to follow Jesus in our own generation. And notice how Paul describes these Christians. He calls them saints who are faithful. That Greek word that we translate saints is it's holy ones. These are true Christians who've been made holy by God through the blood of Christ, and in Paul's view, they are faithfully following Jesus in the middle of a very challenging situation in Ephesus. And of all the churches that Paul planted, I think this may have been one of the churches that he knew best because he spent three years with them. In fact, this is the story of Paul's relationship to the Ephesians. Paul went to Ephesus on his second missionary journey for the first time and founded a fledgling church there in A.D. 51. On his third missionary journey, he returned to Ephesus, but when he returned, he stayed for almost three years, from the fall of 52 into the summer of 55. And then five or six years after that three-year stay, 
During his first Roman imprisonment, he wrote them this letter uh, when he was basically under house arrest in Rome. He sends this letter with Tychicus uh, to encourage the church in Ephesus, and, uh, he's, and we saw this last week. He sends Tychicus to help them understand his situation and how they can pray for him. And, uh, and so, about a decade has passed by the time he writes this letter to them from when he first came and brought the gospel to that city, which means if you had known these people only a decade before Paul wrote this letter, the last word that would come to your mind to describe them would be the word saints. Now, let me give you a little bit of background in the way these people lived and the culture they grew up in. And I want to begin uh, with a map. Can we show the map of where Ephesus was in the ancient world? I have a map here that I, I want you to see where it is in relationship to Jerusalem in Israel and then also to Rome. All right. While they're working on that, suffice it to say uh, that Ephesus was a large port city uh, on the western coast of what is today Turkey. Uh, that's where it was located. And it was founded by the Greeks in antiquity. It was steeped in Greek culture. And in 129 BC, it came under Roman rule and became a Roman colony. And the Romans even made it the capital of that Roman province. Now, confusingly, they named the province Asia. So, but they don't think the continent of Asia. They named just like a western portion of Turkey Asia. That was the name of the province. And it became the capital of the province. It, it became where the Roman governor lived. And under Roman rule, the city flourished. Uh, it experienced its zenith under Caesar Augustus and also under Tiberius. Uh, it was really helped by many of the reforms Augustus introduced. And then under Tiberius, it really took off as a commercial center. Uh, by the time that Paul visited it, it was a prosperous business center. It, was, it had a harbor, but it also sat along a, a land route uh, that was part of a royal road. And so, there was massive amounts of goods that entered and exited the city. Some 200,000 people lived there, which I got to make this clarification. In ancient times, that's a huge city, right? In our own day, with you know, population and good health care and good diet, that, that doesn't seem big to us. But back then, in ancient times, 200,000 people was a metropolis. And according to some ancient sources, some, there are some Roman historians who believe that Ephesus uh, was second only to Rome as a cosmopolitan center of culture and commerce. So, yeah, you can see it on the map there up on the western coast of Turkey. Um, and in fact, I want to show you a, a picture. Can we put up the picture of the, the city, the model? This is a reconstruction of what it looked like from the coast. You can see in the lower left-hand corner the harbor, and there was a, a, a way up into the city. Um, the road, the, the T-intersection that's up there, that was the main road uh, through the city. You can see there's a number of temples. It had a huge theater. Their theater could hold 25,000 people, which was huge back then. Uh, and, and now, off the map, you can't quite see it on the map, but one of the most important things about the city is that it had one of the 
uh, seven wonders of the ancient world. It had the temple of Artemis. Uh, this is uh, a reconstruction that you can find in Turkey today. It's not full scale, right? That's a scale uh, reconstruction of the temple of Artemis. Uh, Artemis was the goddess of the moon, the hunt, and fertility. Her Roman equivalent is the goddess Diana. And Artemis came to be thought of as the goddess of money because of her connection to the fertility of the ground and thus crops and thus prosperity. And on top of that, a meteorite fell near the city. Uh, it fell outside of Ephesus that some people thought looked like Artemis. Other people thought it just looked like a meteorite. But some people thought it looked like Artemis. And so they were saying, look, she went to all the trouble to send us her own image. And so they set up a temple to her. And picture this. This temple was seven times larger than the Parthenon in Athens. This pl the place was massive, and it was all made of marble. It was uh, the roof. It was, first of all, it was bigger than a football field in terms of the area that it covered. The roof was held up by 117 um, columns, and each column was six feet across and over 60 feet high, and it became a huge attraction in the ancient world. It was a beautiful structure. Uh, in fact, um, the road that led out of the city out uh, to the Temple of Artemis, what the, what the Ephesians did is they made a 35-foot-wide road that ran for a mile, and they paved it all with marble. So this was like gorgeous road leading to a gorgeous temple. The problem is what actually happened in the temple made it a disgusting place. Things went on in the temple that I can't describe on a family-friendly Sunday, things like the fertility worship, but also the sacrifices that went on in the temple. I've known Christians who've toured Ephesus, and they've gone to the… there's a museum uh, near archaeological Ephesus there in Turkey where they've taken many, much of the artwork that was excavated and put it in a museum to preserve it. And I've had Christians tell me, I can't even like share what's on some of the artwork in there. It was so wicked. If you, if you are kind of wanting a hint, uh, thank Pompeii. Like there's similar things to what we find in Pompeii that went on. And the Temple of Artemis was like an idolatrous Disney world of the ancient world. And because of it, because so many people would come visit it, it also became a financial center. So much money accumulated in the temple that the priests started doing banking with the temple offerings because there was more money than they knew what to do with. And Artemis became associated over time as being the god, uh, goddess of business. And if you wanted to be uh, successful in business, you served her. You sacrificed to her. And at times, we know that even child sacrifice took place in the temple, which brings us to the sordid side of Ephesus. Ephesus was an idolatrous town known for the worship of Artemis and other Greek and Roman gods and goddesses. It was a city known also primarily for its connection to the occult uh, and to magic. In the ancient world, books of incantations that were meant to cast spells, meant to cast curses on others, they became known in the ancient world as Ephesian books. So think about that just for a moment. An entire genre of literature got named for the city. 
the genre of literature known as curses and dabbling in the occult. That was uh, what it got named for. And while Paul was in Ephesus, uh, during his first journey, God did amazing miracles through him. Many people repented and placed their faith in Jesus. And listen to what Luke says about what their repentance in Ephesus looked like. This is Acts chapter 19, verse 18. Many of those who had believed kept coming and confessing and disclosing their practices, and many of those who practiced magic brought their books together and began burning them in the sight of everyone. And they counted up the price of them and found it 50,000 pieces of silver. The pieces of silver there are Greek drachmas that were worth one day's wages. So if you have 150 working days in the year for a working man, and then you divide that by how many pieces of silver were brought, it's like over 200 years of wages just in the books that repentant Christians were bringing and giving up uh, that were all about the occult. And this was the context that the people in the church of Ephesus grew up in and were saved out of. Now, undoubtedly, there was a synagogue in Ephesus, and undoubtedly, there were some Jews saved out of that synagogue, but the majority of people in the Ephesian church had grown up in this idolatrous uh, context where the occult was welcomed and celebrated. They had lived in that. Uh, in fact, Paul says that before the gospel came, they were living without hope and without God in the world. They were living according to the desires of their flesh, indulging every kind of sexual sin that was common in the Greek and Roman world. They worshiped Artemis. They made uh, an idol out of money and sex and pleasure and sports, um, as well as uh, worshiping the idols of Greece and Rome. But God, being rich in mercy, sent the gospel to them through Paul, and the Holy Spirit brought many of them to repentance and faith. And now, ten years after the gospel first came, Paul calls these people saints, and he's observed over this decade that they are living faithful to the Lord Jesus in the middle of a city where there was a lot of temptation. And our spiritual story is the same way. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were estranged from God because of our rebellion, but God had mercy on us. He sent the gospel to us and drew us to Himself and to salvation. We could say it this way. Paul's intended readers were Christians in Ephesus, but though we don't live in Ephesus, we're Christians as well, and this, that makes this letter very relevant to us as we try and live in our own generation. But simply saying that's a good reason why we should study this letter, again, it doesn't adequately explain who the recipients of this letter were. Because you see, just as there are actually two authors for this letter, there are actually two intended recipients. The letter was originally written to the Ephesian church in the early 60s AD, but the Holy Spirit also guided Paul to write what he wrote with all Christians who live in the church age in mind. Uh, and not only that, the Holy Spirit had us in mind and every other Christian in the churches when this was penned, but the Holy Spirit uses what was written to speak to our hearts in a fresh way. We know this from the way the author of Hebrews talks about the Psalms. In, in Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 3, the author of Hebrews is arguing with his, uh, with his readers 
not to harden their hearts and reject the offer of grace that comes to them in the gospel through Christ. And to uh, help his argument, he wants to use a portion of Psalm 95 that he thinks is eminently relevant to the situation. And listen to the way he introduces Psalm 95. Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says… Now, stop and think about that for a moment. That is grammatically incorrect. Uh, Psalm 95 was written hundreds of years before the author of Hebrews wrote his letter. Believing as we do in inspiration, it would be better to say it this way, just as the Holy Spirit said through the psalmist, that would be the right way to say it. But that's not what the author of Hebrews says. Why? Well, because according to the author of Hebrews, every time Psalm 95 is read out loud, the Holy Spirit speaks. This is why our Puritan, our, the English Puritans, said what the Holy Spirit said, and when they said said, they meant through the biblical author when God's Word was penned. What the Holy Spirit said, the Holy Spirit is saying. Every time His, the Word is read or proclaimed, the Holy Spirit is speaking. And so, this is why we study the Bible and talk about it as a living book, because the Holy Spirit takes the words and uses them to change the hearts of those who read it and understand it. And so, we're studying Ephesians because though it was originally penned to the Ephesian church in 60 AD, and though we, uh, a lot of the things that they faced are relatable to us, uh, that's a good reason to study it, but we're also studying it because the Holy Spirit had us in mind and our instruction, in fact, the instruction of every Christian in the church era when it was penned. And we trust that when this letter is read out loud and understood, and as I do my best to proclaim it, that the Holy Spirit will speak His words to us in a fresh way. And so, we choose to study it because we believe it was written to us by the Holy Spirit. And then finally, we choose to study Ephesians because of its promised benefits. Look at verse 2 for a moment. Paul, give what, Paul gives what amounts to an informal prayer, uh, an invocation this way, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So, Paul's desire through prayer uh, for the Ephesians and for us is that God would give us grace and peace. His prayer is that God would mediate His blessings to us. But the question is this, how does He do that? Well, there are many ways in Scripture that we receive grace. But <clears throat> here, one of the ways is through the actual letter. Uh, when Paul gave his farewell address to the Ephesian elders, uh, this was during his imprisonment. He was journeying to Rome, but he was allowed to meet with them when the ship he was on stopped in Ephesus. And when he was addressing them, he said this, "'And now I commend you to God and to the word of His grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. So, when Paul commends the elders to the word of His grace, of God's grace, he doesn't mean the message about God's grace. He means the message itself. The message itself is used by the Holy Spirit in our lives to build us up and to convey grace and peace to us. God gives grace uh, through the conduit or channel, if you will, of His Word. And so, the blessings of grace and peace are ours in part 
through our study of Ephesians. That's why we're studying the letter. We believe we will find the grace that we need to get through life and peace in the middle of a world that's not very peaceful. We're going to find that as we go through Ephesians together. We believe we'll find it in this book. And so, why have we chosen to study Ephesians? Why study it at all? Well, because it was written by the Apostle Paul as he was moved by the Holy Spirit to write the very words of God. And though it was originally written to the Ephesians, we believe that uh, since it's part of Holy Scripture, the Spirit will speak to us through it as well. And we've also chosen to study it because we believe that in it we will find grace and peace. So, Ephesians holds wonderful treasures for us. And as we come to the end of examining this greeting of Paul, uh, let me just give a few points of application here at the beginning of our study. First of all, I want to encourage you, if you don't have a Bible reading plan or listening plan that you're working through, if, if Monday through Friday you don't pick up your Bible or turn on the app and listen to Scripture read, if you're not doing anything, I want to encourage you this week, uh, read or listen to Ephesians. It's only six chapters long. It's not a huge time commitment. Read it and try to, to really grapple with what it says, because I believe uh, you'll find grace and peace. Second, pray for me as I try to preach through this book. I agree with Peter. There are some things Paul has written that are hard to understand, which pastors have to figure out how to explain before they preach. And I need help, right? Um, pray this, this, this is the specific prayer I would like. Pray that as I study it, the implications of what Paul says, not just the applications for us, those are good, but the implications of what Paul says would leap off the page to me. I want to preach this in such a way that what you get isn't just a... a, a an exegetical lecture with a few archaeological pictures, and that's it, and it's just like a clinical study of the text. Uh, God's Word is meant to change us. It's meant to transform us, and I don't want to miss that as I preach it. So, pray for your pastor. Uh, I have limitations. I'm a man of modest gifting, and I need your prayers in order to preach this well. So, pray for me. And then third, as you consider the story of the man who wrote it, the Apostle Paul, remember, uh, he describes himself in Acts 26. He's standing before Agrippa, and he gives his testimony of how he came to the Lord Jesus Christ before Agrippa. And he says in that testimony, he was a blasphemer and persecutor of the church, but God brought him to faith, appointed him to be an apostle, uh, and has, He's blessed all of us as an apostle. So, remember that no sinner is beyond the reach of God's grace. I bring this up just to challenge you, brothers and sisters. Is there anybody in your life that you've given up on? Uh, if they're antagonistic to the gospel, uh, resent the gospel, attack you for trying to share it with them, well, then you don't have to cast your pearls before swine but you also shouldn't give up on them. Don't grow weary in doing well by praying for them, by being a good model of the Christian life to them, and finding wise ways to love them. If God's grace can reach Paul, there's nobody His grace can't reach. Let's pray.